ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome back to our Best of 2023 week. And today it's my conversation with Karen Boimler. Karen Boimler grew up in the German countryside, picking mushrooms and playing the violin. Then one day, an Australian band, the Go-Betweens, with Robert Forster and Grant McLennan, played in a nearby town. Karen and Robert met at the gig and they started writing letters to one another. And over time, they fell in love. The couple eventually moved to Robert's hometown, Brisbane. And that's where they raised their two kids, in a little house surrounded by trees and birds and always full of music. Then a few years ago, Karen started feeling strangely exhausted and just not right. Doctors didn't know what was going on until 2021 when Karen was diagnosed with stage 4 ovarian cancer. She was 55 and the doctors told her that she was too sick for surgery. Her friends and family swung into action to help Karen through what would become the fight of her life. Karen herself was so weak, she was barely able to sit up. But one night, as she and Robert sat by the fire in their living room, they began singing together. And in the weeks that followed, their kids and friends joined in. And for Karen, this was an absolute refuge. Her health is looking much better these days. And some of the music that Karen, her husband Robert Forster, and their children and friends created in the midst of her illness has been released on an album called The Candle and the Flame. Hi, Karen. Hi, Sarah. As I said, you grew up in Germany. Mm -hmm. Whereabouts? I grew up in the south of Germany uh, in an area called Bavaria. And uh, I grew up in a small town, so very rural. Imagine tractors going down the road. <laughs> Lots of, uh, you know, fields and forests all around. And uh, I could, on a clear day, I could see the Bavarian mountains from my bedroom. <laughs> it was really a very beautiful area. Your father was the brewmeister, yes. which sounds like something out of like a Grimm's fairy tale. What does it mean to be the brewmeister? Well, he was the brewmeister, the brewmeister, we say. Um, that means there was a little brewery in that town. That's why we moved there when I was very young. And you have to understand, Bavarians love their beer. I mean, we're famous for this. The Dirndls, the Lederhosen, the beer. <laughs> so... I was always, as a child, very proud of him because he, like, ran the whole thing. He was the boss. Unfortunately, not the owner. People always ask me, so did he own it? <laughs> I said, well, he unfortunately just did the work. not. He just did the work, yeah. <laughs> but he did a very, very good job. He made excellent beer, I have to say. And um, he worked there for over 30 years, took his bike riding down the hill to the brewery on a bicycle and, um, yeah, made excellent beer that people loved. <laughs> Where else did you spend a lot of time as a child? Look, a lot of time I spent with my grandparents because, um, you know, it was great with my parents, but it was a typical thing of, you know, the parents always try to, you know, shape you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, anyway, grandparents are a little freer. And my grandparents actually were a little bit wild, I'd say. They were fantastic. I had this amazing grandmother. My grandfather was great too, but I was very, just spent more time with her. And she was a total hoot and really supportive and up to doing things. She always, like, we did stuff. What sort know? of stuff? Like, you know, we'd, we'd uh, have fires in the garden and have, like, sausages on a stick and we'd, you know, make those. We'd go on train trips because they lived on top upstairs of a train station. Why was that? Because my grandfather was worked for the railway for all his life and then when they retired, 
they got offered this little train station where, like, there was still tickets being sold and everything going on downstairs, and up they lived upstairs. So I and I spent a lot of time with them, all my holidays. You know, lots of weekends. I remember lying in bed and hearing the trains rattling by and kind of really liking that. <laughs> Something very comforting about the regularity and the rhythm of a train. It's there very is. different from car traffic. There is, exactly. And, you know, even though it wakes you at night quite often, you just go like, oh, yeah, there's a train. And you, and then it's over and then there's just this peace again because this train station, what was so um, amazing about it, it was just on its own. Again, there was just lots of big chestnut trees around, like very picturesque, like... When I think about it, it's really quite picture book. It was really beautiful. And uh, my grandmother and I would go for walks and go for trips by train to the next city or we'd walk up to the next village, which was about a two-kilometre walk up the hill along the road into this one little shop (laughs) that there was, you know, and we'd buy sweets and, you know, she was just great. What memories do you have of music as a child? Quite a bit, actually, because... um, yeah, like my grandmother, again, my grandmother, really, she played the zither. What's that? Uh, do you know? I don't know what that is in English. It's like, um, I don't know whether it's a Bavarian instrument. It's probably used all over the world. But it's you play it sitting down and it's with strings and uh, you sort of push down almost like onto a guitar on with the left hand and with the right hand, with the thumb, you pick the notes and she had these sort of silver... Sorry. Like a thimble. Yeah, sort of. these little things around her, her fingers and she'd play the melody with her thumb and the bass with the other four fingers. And she was really great at it, like really. Like actually when she was young she was in a little band with her sisters and they'd go to pubs. The dad would come along <laughs> to keep an eye on the girls but they would play in pubs and people were dancing and that's they earned money like that. I've got a beautiful photo of the three of them. Wow. Black and white where they're just, you know, guitars in hand. So it's very much a, a home affair. And did she teach you an instrument? No, she didn't. But uh, when When I started learning the violin at school, I was 10 years old, she was very (laughs) encouraging, which is what's in great contrast, I might say, to my parents, who were always like, oh my God, Karen's practicing again. (laughs) Like they did not like that at all. But my grandmother was always like, oh, and bring your violin along. And, you know, it was very, so that was really lovely. (laughs) What would happen when your grandmother and grandfather sang together? See, the funny thing about them, whilst they, like, they got on really well. They were both great gardeners, like, you know, he did all the veggies and she did all the flowers and, you know, they had their their common themes, but they were also kind of haggling all day, like, from morning till night, you, you mean, could say. Like, bickering, arguing. Yeah, just, but not, not never in a, in a way that was, like, it never upset me as a child. Like, it was just them. It was kind of the thing how they communicated. But the funny thing was, and I've only seen this, I think, two or three times when I was little, when my grandmother got out her tzitta and she started singing, my grandfather would sit down and he'd look at her and he'd sing harmonies with her. And it was the only time I've ever seen them look like in love. You know, like they just melted into each other. And I was like, wow, what's going on here? And the funny thing is my brother... Uh, my younger brother told me about this just a couple of years ago, actually. He just said, have you ever seen them play together? <laughs> I said, yes, you know. He talked about it too. He was the same for him. It was like, whoa, there was this whole other thing going on. And I do feel that's stayed with me, you know. That was a real, how intimate music making is, you know. And just like everything fell away and they just sat together and they sang so beautiful and they looked at each other and it was just lovely. They, I wish they would have done it more. They didn't do it often. <laughs> Tell me about mushroom season in Bavaria. What would happen then? Okay, mushroom season was very important. This happened both with my parents and also with my grandparents. We'd go out and we'd go mushroom hunting. We'd know the spots, like there's certain, like say champignons uh, you can find in fields more. And in the forest, you find a different kind of mushroom, you know. And uh, the forest mushroom hunting I did more with my grandmother. And uh, we spent hours just walking around looking for them. And she'd, you know, like I always, people ask me, you know, like, did I have a nice little basket around my arm? Well, I didn't. <laughs> had a plastic bucket or something. It probably was a plastic bag even, you know. <laughs> 
like it was very kind of, it wasn't sort of that romantic looking, but we, it was a great time. And, and what was it like inside the forest? Like, was it dark or, or what were the sounds? How, how was it to be inside the forest? Um, it was a little bit dark, but not in a scary way, because also my grandmother was there. Um, even though by myself, I used to be quite scared in forests. Definitely a place of, yeah, sort of great mystery. <laughs> um, it was moist. You could really smell the air. It was really thick with smell because also mushrooms typically grow when it's a bit moist, when there's been rain and stuff. And so we'd go out then and, yeah, we'd be picking and then you'd come home and there was great care taken with looking at the mushrooms, you know. They were studied, you know, and heads would go together. My mum, my grandfather, you know, like everyone would look is this a good one or a bad one? <laughs> and by good or bad, do you mean poisonous? Yes, because quite often the poisonous ones and the, you know, the good ones that you can eat look quite similar. There's just a tiny little distinction. And, you know, there were no books or anything. They just, it's this knowledge that, you know, I couldn't tell one from the other. I've got no idea. Unfortunately, I didn't pick that, that sort of stuff up. But my, they all knew. But the funny thing is... We'd cook the mushrooms and at the same time I also and eat lots of them and really enjoy that. But I also remember my grandmother reading out of the paper to my granddad going like, oh, somebody has died in Armsberg. They, you know, the mushrooms, they ate this and that. Or somebody ended up in hospital. Again. You know, like that was a regular... And I was like, oh, okay. So you're spooning in a, another taste of mushroom. This is high-risk eating, Cara. Well, it didn't seem like that to me. You know, I was completely trusting, like, as ever. <laughs> I think I still am that way. It's probably my problem. <laughs> Were you good at spotting them with your child's eyes? Could you, could yes, you find I them? Yes, I did, but I had no idea whether they were the good ones or the bad ones, apart from the famous ones, you know, the red ones with the white dots. I mean, <laughs> stuff like that, I could tell. But, yeah, I, I could spot them, but I didn't know which one was which. So yeah. so the forest was somewhere that was otherworldly and, and beautiful, but also a place that you would go into and, and find food. What's the story about your mum and, and the blueberries? <laughs> it's, a, it's a beautiful story when you think of it. Um, when she was a teenager, I forget how old she was, 13, 14, something like that, she went out into the forest to pick blueberries and she had this very special little not a basket, but it, you know, it had a handle and to the front out it had metal little sort of teeth coming out. And it's so you almost like a comb, mm. I guess, because blueberry picking by hand took far too long. So you just went under the bush with that and just pulled them out. And it meant the bush was still intact, but the blueberries rolled into the back of this little thing. And we still have it at home. And she talks about that she she went out and sold them at the you know, local shop or something. I don't know where she sold them, but she sold them. And she saved up the money and she bought her first winter coat with it. And she was so proud of that. You know, how beautiful is that? Those were the days. <laughs> so this was the, the world that you grew up in, Karen. What did you imagine doing after you finished school? What did you want to do back then? Do you know, for a long time, I kind of didn't really know what to do. Um, I was drawn to writing a little bit, so I was thinking about that. At the end, I went with psychology. So I uh, moved to kind of the next university town, which was quite close, about 45 minutes away, a beautiful town called Regensburg. If you ever go to Germany, Sarah, forget Berlin, <laughs> forget all these other places, go to Regensburg. It's what, beautiful. What makes it so beautiful? It's um, it's a small town of about 120,000 people, as I said, a university town. And the great thing about it is it wasn't bombed during the war. So it's completely intact. And you really step into this world. And I must say that's what I missed a lot when I moved to Australia. You know, like I think Australia has, you know, the fantastic nature and all of that. But that I really missed the cobblestones, the old buildings, the fog. <laughs> Just that. Whereas I arrived here, I remember the the door of the plane just opened, and I was like, "Whoa!" I could barely open my eyes. It was so strong. Were you playing music as well at at university? I was. I played in a band at the time. I wasn't initially in the band. I used to actually manage them. Would you believe I was the manager? <laughs> but then they had another woman, young woman, in the band, and she moved to Berlin. And um, when she left. They got the manager. <laughs> it was 
sudden opening, like a chorus girl. <laughs> Position vacant. <laughs> One night you um, you went along to a gig to see an Australian band called The Go-Betweens. Yeah. What happened? Uh, I saw them play in Munich and uh, really loved the gig. But then I told friends of mine who didn't go because I think they were on holidays or something and I said, you know, this was a great show and you really missed something here. So a couple of days later, I actually was at my parents' place. I remember it was my mum's birthday and it was a public holiday. It must have been one of those Catholic holidays like there's, you know, lots of them in Bavaria. That's why I remember the day, otherwise I wouldn't. But it was her birthday and I was there and, you know, you have the cake and the whole thing and I was sort of, you know, wanting to get out of there again, (laughs) as you do when you're that age. And the phone rang and those friends of mine called and said, we just saw the go-betweens are playing in Heidelberg. And we've missed the show and you liked it so much, so we've decided we're going to go. Would you like to come along? I just thought for a moment, I just went like, okay, I'll come. So it was quite a drive, several hours, I forget how long, but we arrived early. So we just hung around outside, there was trees opposite and, you know, we just sort of sat there and then the go-betweens walked out. (laughs) They They just sound checked and they just walked out like in front of us and we started talking. And then after that show, I was still, you know, having a drink after the show, as you do, and uh, Robert and Grant wandered out. And suddenly I was sitting on an amp, Robert was sitting beside me. (laughs) And we started talking. How did you get to know one another when you were living on opposite sides of the world? Well, do you know, after that first tour where we met, we didn't see each other for one and a half years. Um, So we didn't. But then we met again. And we obviously left a bit of an impression with each other. (laughs) And that's where we talked more and more. And that's where we really connected and clicked. And, uh, yeah, after that tour, we started writing letters. It was the time of, you know, the airmail letters with the blue and red little stripes, these very thin light letters that you didn't dare to put a second page in because it would get too expensive. (laughs) Do you remember waiting for his letters to arrive? Of course, yes. It was about one a month. (laughs) I actually got to know my husband through letter writing on opposite sides of the world. It's a very special way to get to know someone. There's a different pace and a different kind of intimacy. Absolutely, You get a lot of time to think about the other person and, um, yeah, it's very different. Absolutely. I cannot imagine... Robert and myself getting together with emails and text messages. It just, I don't think it would have worked. (laughs) When the two of you finally decided to stay in the same place, where did you first live? Well, being such a, you know, loving the trees and the fields, after a year, my first year at uni, I took some friends into renting a house that was just about 15 kilometres out of Regensburg because I really needed that feeling of being able to step out and walk into the fields, walk into the forest. That just was part of my, you know, just growing up like that. I just loved that. So I was living in this share house in a tiny little village and funny enough, just a few weeks before Robert and I got together, one of um, my friends who had two rooms He spent a lot of time with his girlfriend, with his partner, and so he said, look, I really don't need the two rooms. You can have one of them. My room, the one I had, was tiny, so I jumped at that and got the second room and I painted it and made it all nice and it was just ready. And then Robert came. (laughs) You know, we got together and I literally had a a room for him to move in. It's, like, incredible how all that came together because where would I have put him? (laughs) Australians, you always end up sleeping somewhere. I mean, I'm sure he would have, you know, found the sofa. Was um, was it a happy time? Oh, it was an incredible time. Yeah, it was a very special summer. It was um, 1989. Yeah, I think it was special apart from, you know, you're in love, you get together finally after two years and all this time and it was just like really magical. We went to lakes, swimming and into Regensburg and played music together, lots of music. I also used to rehearse downstairs with my band in the kitchen (laughs) and he would be upstairs and, you know, write his music. It was really, really special. But I think for Robert also, the first time that he kind of stepped out of the band, you know, and the stress of the band in a way, you know, all the touring, the big sketch, like they've been going for years So for him, it was like a real breathing out. It was lovely. 
Of course, he came from the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. What was it like for you arriving in Australia the first time? (laughs) Strange. Very strange, I have to say. And, oh, so scary. Scary? (laughs) Very scary because nature here is scary. (laughs) See, I've just been talking about the woods and all of this and how I loved that. And suddenly you go for a walk and then a snake rears up at you. It was like that was really difficult for me. I have to say, that I couldn't relax into that. The first day when I arrived, um, we sat at Robert's parents' house on the veranda and the birds were so loud and the cicadas and everything, I couldn't understand a word of what anybody (laughs) was saying. Like I was just not used to this noise level around because Europe is just so quiet. So gentle trains coming into the station now and again. (laughs) It's a lot quieter and a lot more, just a lot, it's a bit mellow. So that was a bit, really took me a while to get used to, I have to say. It's great, like it's beautiful, but, you know, when you're not used to it, it's quite confronting actually. You moved here permanently when your children were young, so away from your family, Mm. away from your language. Mm. How isolating was that at the time? It was terrible. It was terrible, I have to say. That was probably the hardest time in my life and I hadn't realised it. Like when we made that decision to come out, it was very much, you know, Robert really wanted to play with Grant. He really wanted, you know, like he really ached for that and he was homesick too. And I thought, well, you know, we've got the two little kids and I was all into motherhood and that's all I wanted, that's all I could think about at that time. I said, oh, you know, let's do that, the sunshine, the this, the that, you know, it just it seemed very... Um, alluring, is it the word? But, you know, they say it takes a village to raise a child. And once I was here, I realised I've left my village. I know no one. And the few people, like I'd lived here in the 90s and I'd made lovely friends, but they all had moved away in the meantime, like, you know, Melbourne, Sydney. And there was one couple that I was also close with and they had two children, would have been ideal, but that was the time before the navigation systems and all that. And I don't know, Sarah, how that is for you, but you've got little kids in the car and you don't know the way and it's hot and da-da-da. I just wasn't brave enough to, you know, hike across town and find the... I just didn't have that in me. So it was very much at home. The thing is also, I think, what I didn't expect in Germany at least, you know, I used to step outside the door and there were prams and children everywhere. You'd go to a playground. That was our daily thing. There was different ones in the area. And there'd be mums to talk with and you'd just connect it. And here I'd step out with the kids. I'd go to a playground and there was nobody except us. Like there just wasn't anybody around. So if you don't have friends, if you don't know, it's like I really looked, I tried, but it was just very hard to get to know people. And how well did the world of of rock music fit with the world of parenthood? for you as a couple? Well, not at all, really, (laughs) as you can imagine. Um, Yeah, it's just a whole other rhythm, really. And uh, it also means that um, Robert had to go away a lot. He had to go on tour. And we, you know, we really talked about every single tour and really discussed it and had boundaries around that. Like our rule was always never longer than three weeks in one go. And then he had to be back (laughs) and for a little while at least, even if he then went off again after a week or something. But we just really tried to make it work for me, but also for the kids. And, you know, on the other hand, you had Grant who loved touring. He would have loved to have toured 365 days a year loved it. And Robert was, well, you know, he loved it too, but he also wanted to be home with us a bit, you know, so that he had to really juggle all that. Yeah. The band that that Robert and Grant were in, the Go-Betweens, they weren't a hit machine, but they were much loved and and hugely influential and admired in in certain circles. Yes. What did that mean for your kids as they got older? I mean, how did they place what their father did? Well, that's the funny thing. We were so protective and really trying to keep rock and roll out in a way. I mean, at the same time, it was very much in the house, you know, like Robert played, we played, you know, all sorts of, there was music in the house and it was talked about. It's not like it was a secret or anything. And I went to gigs with them when they were little too. Like they saw Dad play on stage and so they did know that. But at the same time, they didn't really have too much of an idea. And I remember when our son, Louis, was a teenager and started, you know, going out into the world a little bit, he came home one day and said, 
I didn't realise that a lot of people know the go-betweens. <laughs> like, he just thought this was just some tiny little, you know, like... Dad's cover band. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, I did think then how beautiful. We must have done a good job because they, he really had no idea. And what about their teenage friends, Karen? Did the reality of your life in, in the Brisbane suburbs upend some of their friends' ideas about what a rock musician's world would be? Well, the, I think they were all a bit surprised <laughs> because they must have thought that, you know, um, we're swimming in money, we have a big mansion. So whenever, whenever Champagne you, for breakfast. Yeah, and... exactly. Whenever children, like playmates, came along, they were like, oh... <laughs> The house is a little shack. They loved it, but okay. And I remember this one little girl. I was driving. I was driving up the driveway. Picked her up from school with Loretta, and they were chatting. And Robert was doing some gardening, and she just looked and went like, "I thought you had a gardener." Like she was just like, she couldn't believe what she was seeing. <laughs> very funny. And that's in those moments we always realised people have a very different perception of what it is actually like. And our kids did sort of come across that quite a bit, that it just didn't add up really. (laughs) And what was it like for you to be the wife of a well-known artist in a foreign country? Like, did you feel in in the shadow? Yeah, I did find that difficult, I must say. Um, It wasn't a problem in Germany because people knew me. I was me and he was my partner. But here, because I didn't know anyone... Everyone saw me as the wife and that's difficult, you know. I really had to be very strong within myself to not let that get to me. At times it did, I have to say. At times I got furious about that. It just, yeah, but it just happens. Like I can see where that's coming from. It's all logical. Of course it is that way. But it can still be upsetting sometimes, particularly when you are a bit lonely and when you are feeling that. Yeah, definitely. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Karen, tell me what was going on that that led you to make an appointment with your GP back in 2020. Um, I had, you know, I was going through, I think they call it perimenopause. I was still having periods every now and again. So it wasn't sort of, I was aware of that. And I had a bit of spotting, a bit of bleeding, and it kept going on. And I'd never had this before. So I thought, is this just menopause or is this something more? So I better have it checked out. I went to my GP. She was great. She immediately went like, look, let's just run all the tests. <laughs> she was really fantastic. Like I had a scan, like an internal scan. I had an X-ray. I had like the full thing. She sent me to a mammogram. I did everything. And the outcome was it's all clear. Um, the internal scan did show a little cyst. And in hindsight, like I don't know whether that was anything or nothing, but the radiologist at the time thought, you know, that's that's okay. And it was all fine. So, you know, I had that in October and I thought, good, I've done it all. I'm fine. That's great. Must all just be menopause. You know, this vague menopause drives you crazy. You know, I read books about menopause because I tried to understand what was going on because I was really just not feeling myself. I was really struggling with it. And do you know, I talked to my friend, she's a nurse, about menopause. She was going through it too. And then she said, you know, doctors just don't seem to know anything about it. like that's And that was my feeling too. It's like you really had to read up on it yourself a bit. And I had a female doctor who really knew stuff, you know, but it was, it was just so vague really. And she said to me, do you know, it's funny, I've learned so much about the male reproductive organs. I know everything about the penis, she said, and all of that. I have learned nothing, and she repeated, absolutely nothing about the female reproductive organs. I know nothing. And in that moment, I thought, well, how can doctors help us if they're not taught, if nurses are not taught, if it's not known, if it's not researched, if this is not looked at? How can they give us answers? Like, you know, there are no answers because nobody's looked. So what took you back to the doctor to, to get things checked out again? Um... I I just felt really 
strange. It wasn't really pain, but I was tired a lot. It all felt weird. And I remember actually saying to Robert, Robert, do you think I can go to the doctor and say, I feel weird? <laughs> and uh, I did, so I didn't because it was just this strange feeling. And I, I just always put it down to menopause. But then in May, I had my first AstraZeneca vaccination and then it just exploded. That's what it felt like. Like I had such severe tummy pain and like it was, it got so bad and then it settled down, but it just kind of still hung around. And again, I went back to the doctor and we did blood tests. And so, you know, we really kept an eye on all that, but we really thought at the end of the day, this had to do with the vaccination and it just didn't settle and didn't settle. And I went back to my doctor again and I said, look, it's just something's just not right. And by that time, I also started to have pain. And that's when I felt like I can now say I have pain. And um, she actually asked me, you know, like between zero and ten, that question, and stupid me. I mean, it really doesn't matter, but I just went, like, oh, you know, you play everything down. Oh, maybe three or four. In hindsight, I thought, well, actually, it was a whole lot more. But you kind of just get on with life all the time and you ignore it because you think, yeah, it's just menopause. It's just this vaccination, that sort of thing. Anyway, we ran tests again and I went in the next day and um, she told me, you've got ovarian cancer. And uh, I got Robert. We sort of had a bit of a weird feeling already. He was waiting in the car park. And I got him and we talked about it. It was a big shock, but I remember my daughter went like, oh, she checked it all out because I couldn't look at the internet. Like I'm, I just thought if I do that, I'm going to go crazy. I can't do that. But she did it and she said, oh, do you know, stage one, easy. Like um, over the 90s was the percentage of that you can easily get it out. It's fine. So that gave me a little bit of hope, but I just had a bit of a feeling. I don't know. And then we ran more tests and then I got a phone call from the surgeon and he said, I'm very sorry, we can't offer you surgery. It's just too far gone. The one thing you can do is you can start with chemo and we'll have to look, A, whether you can cope with the chemo, whether you physically can cope with it because it's going to be full on and whether you respond to it. And he said to me, if after three rounds we're able to get the tumour marker down, and then maybe, maybe we can offer you surgery. And, you know, in that moment you just go, okay. You know. So this uh, good news that your daughter had found about stage one ovarian yeah, cancer, yeah. how did that square against this reality from, from the doctor? What Do, was your situation? Oh, I was stage four. Yes, stage four. And why I, this is part of why, Sarah, I really want to talk about my story because I looked. My doctor looked. Like, we were trying to be onto this. Like, I literally, I remember in the weeks before it was found out, I was at work, I walked past a mirror and I stopped in my tracks and I looked at myself in the mirror and I just went, like, what's going on? Something's, like, it was so obvious to me, something's going on, but I just didn't know who to turn to or what to do. The tests had been done. I mean, I can't go to the doctor every three weeks and ask for another scan. It's like you feel so like you're crazy. Is this the particular nature of ovarian cancer, Karen, that it's very hard to detect? Yes, they call it the silent killer, um, which, you know, speaks for itself. It comes on very sort of, it's very vague. One thing, I suddenly was a lot bloated. I had a real swollen tummy and that just didn't go down. And I remember thinking, gee, you look like you're three months pregnant or something. I mean... It was all so strange, you know, but it just also came a bit together with all of that, with the whole COVID craziness and and all my symptoms that I had are literally on that sheet that you get with the AstraZeneca shot. So and I thought that's that's what it is. And then instead you get this very frightening news of yeah. stage four ovarian cancer yeah. and you're too unwell for surgery. We're going to try yeah. chemo. Yeah. How frank were you with your kids about that prognosis? Totally frank. I had to be. Um, I also feel like it's not something you can keep from them. And, you know, our kids, we're very close as a family. Like, 
gee, they would have seen us walk in and they would have just known something's up badly. Like, you, you can't hide something like that, you know. So I told my daughter straight away. My son didn't live at, at home. And I, that evening, I actually drove over to his house and I thought, okay, I'll tell him in person. And, you know, I saw his girlfriend's car in the driveway and he was in a band. And COVID had really, really messed with their dreams in a way. So on the day of my diagnosis, his album, their album, I should say, really their album, the Goon Sex album, came out on that day. They all had been waiting for it. And so I was over there in the car and I just couldn't do it. I drove home again. I just thought, I just want to give him this one night at least of enjoying this. He's been waiting for this. It's been recorded, you know, the year before, a completely different life planned and... Uh, yeah, so COVID already hit our children really badly because they were at that very sensitive age. That's the, really the age group that I think suffered the most. And then that, you know, as we were just coming up for air, things were just getting better. And then I had my diagnosis. And uh, so, yeah, I told my son the next day and he immediately told his bandmates and there are three of them decided, just so beautiful, they cancelled their tour. He stayed, which was such a blessing because it was the days where the borders were still closed. So it wasn't a matter of he could have flown off and done his thing and then come home if something would have been... Like, he could not have returned. And he just said, I just can't do that. I just... And because I was a bit typically mum going, oh, you know, they still got to live their lives. You don't want that. And he just went, no, I just... I need to do this, I need mm. to stay here and do this for me. And that was really beautiful. And it helped me so much that my kids were there. And it sounds like a real sort of circling of the wagons that yes. that family just totally, came together. Totally, It was really, I have been so lucky in that. I've, I got so much support. I always say I had to just roll up in the ball and they rolled me through it. That's kind of, how, kind of how it felt. Like it was a team effort and my friends came just flocking in, like people that I'm not even all that close to, just they heard about it and everyone wanted to help. Everyone got together and really meals were delivered, a roster was set. You know, we did none of that. Like people just did it for us. It was so beautiful. People really... Yeah, the amount of flowers. Robert had to go out and buy vases. Like we, we couldn't even put them anywhere. It was just so touching. And, you know, it helped so much. And that's something I'd like to say. If you know somebody that suffers from whatever it is, those gestures mean so much, particularly in your dark moments. I remember a friend wrote me this beautiful message and he said, Karen, you know, we're shoulder to shoulder in this, he said. We're there for you, we're there with you. And later on he wrote me another, he's good with words, clearly. He said, you know, you might not hear from us, but just imagine us standing on the sidelines cheering you on. You know, just lines like that. I really held on to that. It meant so much. The flowers, everything, it's just like love pours into you and you just really need that because... The fact that I had all this support really made it possible. Like, I, I have no idea how somebody could do this without that amount of support because it's that drastic when you do it. Like, it just completely knocks you out. How did you first come to play music with Robert during the time you were receiving chemo following the diagnosis? I remember it very clearly because it was a very moving moment. Um, I was in bed. It was after my second round of chemo and I was very knocked out. And uh, it wasn't all days like that. I had chemo every three weeks and the first 10 days were pretty intense and then it sort of gets better. But that was in the first week and I barely made it out of bed that day. I just was, you know, at that time I was also still in, in pain and, you know, all this sort of stuff. Also, it affected my walking and my whole, like, I, I walked like an 80-year-old, like, sort of hunched over and very slow, kind of, you've got to imagine that. Anyway, so Robert came to the bedroom and he was so wonderful because he always tried to get me moving, tried to get me out. And he sort of said, you know, I've, I've made a fire, there's a cup of tea, 
maybe, you know, do you want to get up for a little bit? And I just went, no, no, I can't. And he kept going and I thought, okay. <laughs> a bit, you know, reluctantly, but I thought, oh, he's gone through all this. He's, you know, it just, it sounds really lovely. Okay, five minutes. So I kind of really dragged myself to the front. Imagine a very slow shuffle and I sort of sat down in the chair I didn't have much of a voice either. I was more of a whisper than a talk, you know, because it also affected my lungs. So, uh, yeah, we sat there, we had some tea, and suddenly he had his guitar and he said, do you like to sing? I went, Robert, I can barely talk. I can't sing, you know. I can't. And I said, oh, all right. You know, he was strumming a bit. I said, okay. And then <sighs> we did. And it was very beautiful. And we just looked at each other. And we just kept playing and singing. It was so nice. Tears rolling down. <laughs> Both of us, you know, it was an incredibly moving moment. And I actually had that sense of we sang and we looked at each other. This is why we've played all this music together all these years. So I would have this moment right now. It was so special. And at the end of that, I sort of felt like, okay, I, I can't sing anymore. And he said, oh, you know, I've got this song and I don't know what to do with it. And I said, oh, play it to me. And he did. And I said, after a couple of lines, I said, oh, I've got an idea. <laughs> he said, all right. So we, we sang it. And it's very funny. I got a recording on my phone because I obviously didn't, I, I knew the song. I'd heard it around the house, but I didn't know the words. And he'd sing and it was, I don't do drugs, I do time. And I just came in on certain lines or on bits of lines. And he just looked at me and just went, wow, that's great. <laughs> that's where I'm taking this song. That's fantastic. You know, he loved it, which was so great. And um, he actually always sort of would quickly say the line that he'd sing so I could sing along. Like he'd sort of go da-da-da-da-da and then sing it so I could be there with him together like a duet. And that was the start, really. That was like such a, it was such a lovely moment for me that I felt like I could contribute this, that he was stuck with this song. He didn't know what direction to take it. And then suddenly there it was. It was great. And I, I got up, I walked back to the bedroom and I could very clearly feel how I was walking a bit more straight, more upright. I had... To call it a spring in my step is a huge exaggeration, but I just had a, it's almost like a little bit of life came back into me. And, I, yeah, I felt, a bit alive. I felt a bit more alive. It felt so good and I could really feel it all through my body and I just went, wow, I need to do more of this. And uh, I told, I mean, Robert could see that, but we spoke about it and we did. That's how it started. It started in our living room by the fire. The chemo had the effect that the doctors wanted it to have and they told you that they would be able to try surgery. Yes, um, yes. What was involved in that surgery, Karen? Well, I knew that it was going to be big surgery. Um, they told me that. Obviously, stage four, it had spread already. So they removed my ovaries, obviously, the fallopian tubes, the uterus, the cervix, it was all over my tummy wall, so they removed that inside of the tummy wall, the, the fatty sort of area there. Um, they took up my appendix and they took up my spleen because it was in my spleen. And apparently, and I don't know whether this is, again, my just my imagination, but it sounded like that to me when the surgeon explained it. They took up my colon and sort of plucked it off and put it back in. That's how it sounded like. But the great news was when the surgical team came around the next morning, they said to me, we were able to get everything out, what we wanted to get out. And in that moment, I thought they probably tell that to everybody to just make them feel good the next morning. But the next time I had chemo and I talked to a few women, I realised that this was very special. It hadn't been like that for all the others, actually. So I was very lucky. It must have been a huge recovery, though, to have after such an enormous surgery yeah. like that. Yes, it was. And, you know, I only stayed in hospital for five days. Like, I've got a scar that's 37 centimetres long, like right down my middle. And, yeah, it's, 
it's difficult, you know. It's very difficult because your house also isn't equipped for that, you know. So the first thing we needed to get was, I call it the monster chair, you know, one of those electric chairs, because I couldn't really get up or down from things or get up and down, even, even getting up from the bed and all that was so hard. So it was, it was a hard time. It was difficult, I have to say. And what was happening to this music that you'd been making yeah. in, in the lead up to yeah. that? Surgery. Well, because we'd been playing, see, we'd been playing together like that one night that I described. So we did that more often. And then the beautiful thing was Lewis wanted to join us, which was so lovely. So, you know, he pulled up a chair and then it was the three of us. And I remember one day, um, because we had this group bringing us food, and uh, our friend Adele played bass in the Go Betweens, she um, delivered lamb shanks. That was her specialty. <laughs> And I texted her and I said, you know, why don't you bring your bass along? And so we played, the four of us. It was so beautiful, but it was so nice. We decided we really wanted to make like a document of that. We just wanted to have it. I don't want to sound dramatic, but going into big surgery, you're always worried a little bit, you know, maybe I won't wake up or something. You just don't know. So we wanted to have this. And we went into the studio and we recorded 10 songs in seven hours. It was a great day. It was such a fun day. It was really, it was like a celebration. We knew I could have surgery, you know, we just wanted to put this down. And the amazing thing was, though, then we were, went home and we listened to it. And I remember, funny enough, it was again that song, um, I Don't Do Drugs, I Do Time. It came on and we heard the first line and Rob and I just looked up and looked at each other and went like, whoa, okay. We just felt like there was something there. Yeah, we just felt like maybe, so this is where the idea was born. Maybe we could actually take this somewhere. Maybe we could actually make something. And Robert was a bit hesitant because he just thought it would be too much. And so it was really me pushing because I, I just was so joyous. It was really an escape. It was great. And, you know, to do it with family and friends, it doesn't get any better than that. It was just great. The album was released last month. Yeah. What's it been like for you having this very intimate music that was, you know, had its birth yeah. in your home while yeah. this was going on for you? What's yeah. it like to have that out in the world? Beautiful. So beautiful. I've been waiting for this to happen. In fact, again, because, you know, in my situation, you just don't know how things are going to go. Um, when I heard February 2023, I said, no, no, it's got to be a lot earlier. Like, we can't, I can't wait till, who knows whether I'm around in February 2023, you know. What have people told you about the songs? What have, what have people who've heard that music said? Do you know, it's been really special because for a start, a lot of people feel they can suddenly talk about their own situations, their own suffering maybe. Um, so there was quite a bit of feedback about that. And people, like, it was almost like a sense of relief for some people that, that that could just be talked about. You know, like one woman wrote to me, I was where you were six years ago and I had not known because it's not really talked about. I think we need to change that. Cancer is very scary. It's a very scary word. Chloe Hooper calls it in her book, Bedtime Stories, she calls it the bogeyman of the adult world. But at the same time, I think it's very important that we do. And I'm glad I've made that decision. I must say it was a big decision for me too. It didn't just, I didn't just like, oh yeah, let's just, it wasn't like that. I really thought about it. I talked with, with the kids about it. They were both totally supportive and thought, you should do this, mum. And Loretta actually said, for all the other women with ovarian cancer, or just for all the girls, for all the women in the world, I think this is a good thing, Mum. And I went like, okay, I'm going to do this. How is your health now at this stage? At this stage, it's very good. I am on um, medication still. I'm taking two tablets a day. Which is a great blessing because normally in my situation, if you keep going down, down that traditional medical route, what you do is you finish chemo and then every three weeks you still got to go back, get a drip uh, and you get one of the three chemo drugs into the arm. And so basically you're completely chained to the hospital and just, 
you know, may I say, every time I go to the hospital, I fall apart completely. Like, that's when I completely lose it. Uh, I walk in, I look all calm, I walk out, I'm still all calm, I'm at home, I'm still calm for a while, and then I fall apart because it just all comes up in me. So now I'm on tablets, and uh, right now I'm actually at three monthly visits. So finally I feel like I'm actually living a life and I can put this aside a bit. I can walk, I can swim. I'm really working on my fitness. I meditate a lot. I'm having a ball. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that. Are you a different person than, than the woman you were two, three years ago? Absolutely. Yes, very different. How? <sighs> I'm a lot happier, would you believe? I know it sounds sounds paradoxical or paradoxical is that the word yeah um but you do you're dealing as I call it the, with the mother of all fears you have to really sit with your own mortality and what happens in that process is that a lot of things fall away and a lot of things become very clear of what you want and what you don't want what's important and what's not things become very clear and you just wake up in the morning and you're just so grateful that you've woken up, you know. And I must say, though, it isn't just coming out of that experience. I'm really working on that too. I'm really fostering that. I'm very much into meditation, mindfulness, gratitude, the whole thing. It sounds like all that boring stuff that people talk about. My kids roll their eyes at it and I completely get it. But These lines, these simple lines, like one day at a time, suddenly are so important. Also, that you wake up and you realise, it's so funny, I remember saying this to my son, life's about the little things. It's not about the big stuff at all. It's about all the little things, the little moments. Suddenly they are what seems so precious. Like you lie in the bed and tubes coming out of you and, you know, there's this big thing, stuff running into your veins and, you know. And all you dream about is, oh, wouldn't it be nice to swim in the lake? Wouldn't it be nice to dance, walk, do yoga? Oh, my God, doing yoga, wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah. And all of that has stayed with me. So I am completely different and I love it. It's great. Very grateful. We wish you many, many, many happy yoga (laughs) classes, swimming, (laughs) dancing, all the rest of it. Karen, thank you so much for sharing your story on Conversations. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Podcast, broadcast, and online. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski on ABC Radio. Karen has continued to do everything to keep herself well this year, and she says that she's very grateful that she's able to have access to a brand new medication for ovarian cancer. She's one of only a few women who were able to secure sponsorship via the pharmaceutical company that produces the tablets. And Karen says she's hoping that this medication will be funded by the government as soon as possible so that all women across Australia who are finding themselves in her situation can benefit from this life-changing treatment. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.